Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is the Highlights Podcast available on iTunes. You probably know that because you're listening to it. Uh, today we had a very interesting show. We talked to Paula Simons about these new guidelines for best practices uh, that Education Minister David Egan passed down about making schools in Alberta more safe and inclusive of various students. And we also spoke to the two women behind the Netflix show everyone is talking about. We spoke with uh, the two directors slash producers of the Netflix sensation Making a Murder. We listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge, 930 to 1230, right here on News Talk 770. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Kincaid and Breckenridge. I'm Roger Kincaid. That's Rob Breckenridge, two Alberta boys living the Alberta dream. Anytime, Alberta. Anytime. Well, Anytime. and yeah, more sad news today, too. I mean, Alan Rickman yeah. passed away. Owner First of the was, uh, uh, David Bowie. Yeah, Alan Rickman, former owner of the Calgary Stampeders, the uh, Calgary Rads roller hockey team. What was it? His name was. What was oh, that. Name? La- I'm sorry, Larry. I'm thinking of Larry Rickman. Yes. Oh my God, I forgot about him. Can we check to make sure he's okay? Larry Rickman. Uh, That's right. No, Alan, of course. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Snape, Harry Potter, but of course uh, Hans Gruber. You know, that was his first uh, film role. Mm-hmm. Was Die Hard. He was also. He did a lot more, obviously. I mean, he was a very accomplished actor. He did a lot of stuff that probably most of us have never seen. But, um, yeah, just 69 years old. Same age as David Bowie, as fate would have it. No kidding. He, he was in that movie Dogma, Kevin Smith movie, with uh, greatest actor in the history of the world ever of all time, Matt Damon, and this guy who's going to be Batman named Ben Affleck. And uh, to me, that's like. That was one of Alan Rickman's best roles for some reason. I really liked him in that movie. Yeah, so a lot of people uh, mourning that today. Uh, but we got a busy show today. Now, we're going to hear, we got an issue to discuss off the top here, but the education minister was announcing this new policy, these new guidelines yesterday for LGBTQ students. He's going to call in, we're told, uh, just after 10 o'clock. Uh, so we're going to get into that. Uh, but we're also going to talk about something we got into yesterday, whether or not uh, policies in Alberta are contributing to, to uncertainty and unease in the oil patch. The price of oil is what it is. Rachel Notley does not control the price of oil. Rachel Notley does not control whether pipelines get built. So how much of what's going on right now in the oil patch uh, can be put at her doorstep? We'll talk about that after 1030. Yeah, you remember we had Kevin O'Leary on yesterday, and he was saying that some leadership, some some better stewardship of the resource, and some better policies would get investment back into this, uh, into this province. We're, we're challenging that assertion, because if that's not... The way it is, then maybe we should bark up a different tree and find some solutions elsewhere. I'm going to talk about the rising cost of food. Uh, food prices are, what do the kids say, uh, cray <laughs> right now? Uh, I was ranting this morning about $7 cauliflower, which is just an astronomical price for something that literally no one in the world likes. Aha, no, you say it's fine. No, 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 you're kidding yourself. It's disgusting. Cauliflower's bad. It's a nice thing to line your sidewalk with. It's not delicious. 
I'm not going to disagree. Thank you very much. But um, it's still, it's it's certainly overpriced. We'll get into that later on. Hey, by the way, if you're a fan of the show Making a Murderer, if you've been involved in conversations about the, the Netflix show Making a Murderer, we are going to have a conversation 12 o'clock today about that show. And we're going to start that conversation. We're going to have an interview with the uh, two women who made this documentary in the first place, these two filmmakers who went to Wisconsin back in 2005 uh, to explore this trial and the fascinating case of a man who had been wrongly convicted of rape and was now suddenly accused of committing a, a horrible murder. Uh, so they're the ones who made this show happen. Laura Riccardi and Moira Demos are going to join us at 12 o'clock today. So take note of that. All right, let's get started with uh, something that broke uh, on our program yesterday. And we actually had a brief moment to talk to Alberta Party leader and Calgary Elbow MLA uh, Greg Clark about the matter uh, when the education minister, David Egan, brought down these new guidelines. And these are guidelines for best practices for creating, uh, I think, what are commonly safe known spaces. as safe spaces yeah, for uh, LGBTQ community um, kids in our schools, in uh, all Alberta schools. Um, but it, this is not law. This is not policy. And they want to be quite clear on the matter that they are not dropping policy on the heads of school boards. These are simply guidelines and best practices. But how far are they willing to go to ensure that Alberta school boards take these best practices and put them into practice? Well, and, you know, I wonder what, what kind of controversies we then get into. As our next guest talks about in her column, there's a suggestion here to, to make dress codes as neutral as possible, even going further than that, uh, avoiding, as she writes here, Activities based on gender-specific roles, such as boys versus girls in academic, athletic, or talent competition. Paula Simons, a columnist with the Edmonton Journal, edmontonjournal.com, joins us. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. You know, it's interesting, and I read a tweet from you last night where you said, you know, that, that this was a difficult column to write because it's a very confusing policy. You know, I, I usually... I didn't get home till 7 last night, and all my family said, where have you been? And I said, I had problems with the column. And they said, did people not call you back? And I said, no, I was just thinking. <laughs> uh, it, it's a very confusing policy, and I think that's why it's difficult to understand what the province hopes to achieve with it. Um, as they're quick to say, this is not a policy. These are these are, in the immortal words of Jeffrey Rush, really more like guidelines than actual rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is not just that we should have inclusive classrooms where trans kids and kids with gender uh, fluid identity should not be isolated and bullied. But it's a wholesale reworking of the way we think and teach about gender in our classes. So according to the guidelines, um, all students should have the right to be addressed if they choose by a gender-neutral pronoun. Staff should be the right, have the right to have themselves called MX rather than Mr. or Ms. or Mrs. or Miss, um, that all communications with parents should never talk about mothers and fathers, but talk about parents and guardians, that kids shouldn't be segregated uh, based on gender for things like sex education or gym class as much as possible, that we should stop trying to sort of make these differentiations between people and that would include things like not having dress codes that say you know girls wear kilts and boys wear pants i think part of the problem is that these rules were based on rules made up um uh by the toronto district school board and the school board in the province of nova scotia and i think that alberta's school system are quite unique i mean here in this province we have 
public schools, we have Catholic schools, we have Francophone schools, we have charter schools, and we have private schools, all of which receive funding from the government and all of which are under the jurisdiction of Alberta education. So it's one thing to say, if you're a private school like, I don't know, Strathcona Tweedsmere, for example, a, a school that might have, you know, sort of English prep school kind of uniforms, to say to them, you shouldn't put the girls in kilts and the boys in pants, because that's sexist. But what do you do at a school on a Hutterite colony? What do you do at a school in a, in a Mennonite settlement? What do you do with Edmonton's Islamic Academy or the Menorah Academy, where there are dress codes that are clearly gendered based on profound religious faith and tradition. So I said to the province, well, what are you going to do? And they said, well, these aren't rules. These are guidelines. And I said, so what happens if school boards and schools don't conform with the guidelines? And then there's sort of a lot of mumbling. Um, no one really quite knows how binding these guidelines and suggested best practices are. Uh, you know, and maybe what has to happen is that individual schools and school boards are going to have to each feel their own way, and that may be appropriate in some circumstances, but not necessarily in all of them. Well, I think that's one of the interesting concerns here is that if the province is saying, look, these aren't, this isn't a policy, these aren't laws, these are guidelines – then it sort of makes it seem like the the ambiguity is there to be interpreted on a case-by-case basis so that something that flies at, say, St. Mary's High School where I went might have a different interpretation at one of those private academies that, that you mentioned. But doesn't that kind of uh, uh, put some powder in the musket of these Human Rights Commission people who might want to see some of these things fleshed out in their uh, in their arena? Well, and it's even more complicated than that because, remember, that by the end of March – all school boards in the province, all school administrations, including private and charter schools, have to be in compliance with Alberta's Education Act and Human Rights Act as amended by Bill 10. So this isn't just a question of, well, we'll let every board seek its own, uh, its own uh, compromise, because the boards have been instructed that they must be in compliance with Alberta law by the end of March. These are the guidelines that are supposed to help them be in compliance by the end of March. So... You know, where does that leave boards who are trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean? And then there's a whole other complication, which is that these guidelines don't just apply to students. They apply to staff. So when I spoke to the uh, Council of Catholic School Superintendents yesterday, um, uh, the person I spoke to there, Sean Haggerty, said, um, well, you know, he's the president and he's the uh, deputy superintendent at Elk Island Catholic Schools, that, you know, the Catholic school systems are now on board with the, you know, the, the idea they understand that they have to support students and they, they want to give students the best possible learning environment. And so they understand that that has to be respectful of students' gender identity and sexuality. And I said, well, what about staff? And he said, sort of, you know, what do you mean, what about staff? I said, well, these rules also apply to staff. And there was a, something of a pause in our conversation because, you know, there's, there's a, a, a famous incident, an infamous incident in the Edmonton area where the St. Albert Catholic School Board fired a substitute teacher who was a trans uh, teacher. Right. And that case is still wrapped up in human rights litigation. So, you know, uh is the province now saying definitively that Catholic school boards can't discriminate against gay and trans staff? 
if that is what they're saying, they're not saying it very clearly. And if that isn't what they're saying, do they need to say it clearly? Because, you know, have we reached the point now where we're going to concede that you can't fire people uh, from a publicly funded school system because of their sexual identity? That's interesting. When you talk about these policies that encourage neutrality, and, and it touches on athletics. Like, I remember at, at my high school, and I didn't play any of these sports, mind you, but I remember very clearly there was a, a boys' rugby team and there was a girls' rugby team, for example. Is, this, is that the sort of thing that this is trying to discourage? Darned if I know. Um, you know it, 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 it seems to be, and yet logic, I mean, you know, and certainly you can construct an argument that says, for example, if you've got a, a girl who's an incredibly good athlete, you know, should she be forced to play on the girls' team if she's good enough to be on the boys' volleyball team or the boys' basketball team? Um, you know, what about a school that only has a, a boys' rugby team and doesn't have a girls' rugby team and the girl wants to play rugby and she's, you know, strong enough and athletic enough that she could she could qualify to be on the team? So that that's fine. But then turn the argument on its head. Are you saying that the boys can try out for the girls' volleyball team? I mean, there are certain things. I know it's very fashionable these days, and I know this because my daughter is at university, and so I get this filtered through her. I know it's very, very fashionable these days to say that there's no such thing as gender, that it's entirely a social construct, and that people choose their gender identities, and that we must you know, break break out of this binary paradigm that says that we're all either boys or girls, that life is not Noah's Ark. Uh, But at some level, gender is not a social construct. Gender is a physiological reality. And with all the goodwill in the world, you can't pretend that there are not substantive and real differences between young men and young women. you know, uh, Sean Haggerty, when I spoke to him, said to me, so, you know, what does this mean when our kids go on overnight ski trips? You know, I mean, it's one thing to say you have to make accommodation for a trans kid who doesn't feel comfortable. You know, say you've got a kid who's transitioning from male to female and doesn't feel comfortable sleeping in a in a room with other male students. Then maybe you have to have a policy where that kid gets a room to themselves. Right. That's different than saying you shouldn't have, you know, that everybody should have co-ed rooms. And and the trouble is that not only are the guidelines unclear, but the the sense of how these guidelines will be implemented implemented is extremely unclear. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to, to get to, and I'm glad you brought it there, was to the implementation. I mean, we can, we can you know, reach and stretch all we want for uh, the questions about which bathroom to use, what happens on the ski trip, how, how do we uh, shack kids up at band camp, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is these are all things that can be canceled and individual bathrooms can be built if we want. What we can never get away from is the fact that there's going to be interactions between teachers and students. And I think that there's a lot of teachers who might look at this and fear that, oh, my God, if I accidentally call a student who I called he, him, for the last, you know, seven years uh, or five years of elementary school, and now all of a sudden it's Z and I forget to say Z, then they can bring this whole guidelines and best practices thing down, not just on me, but on the school and the school board. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a perfect world, we would all use common sense and common decency to make sure that kids are treated as fairly and humanely as possible, and that staff are treated as as fairly and equitably as possible. I mean, it should be possible for people of goodwill to understand that you can construct a system where you give people the respect and the consideration they need 
and deserve. And that means also allowing a Muslim girl to wear a hijab and not running around saying, you know, no, 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 our new orthodoxy says, you know, you can't wear a hijab because that's gendered. You know, th- there needs to be uh, a modicum of flexibility and a modicum of common sense. You can't have, you know, you, you can't be oppressing people in either direction. Whether you can actually legislate common sense is a very different question. Because, look, as far, as far as I can tell, I mean, it seems that gender does matter, which, as you say, it, it, it goes against this new notion that gender doesn't matter. Like, Caitlyn Jenner, to use a very high-profile example, is a woman and is identifying specifically as a woman. It's not as though Caitlyn Jenner just said, look, I, I don't have any gender, right? That's a case where someone who was biologically born a man identifies as a woman and is now to be treated as a woman. In that sense, it seems to me then gender is very relevant. Well, you know, and, and that is the really, really, really interesting philosophical uh, knot at, at the center of this whole debate. I mean, there are also people who, you know, in the trans community out there who believe that Caitlyn Jenner is an extremely poor ambassador for their movement and that because uh, Caitlyn Jenner is able to conform so perfectly with our ideals of what a woman is, quote unquote, supposed to look like. Um, that she sets a sort of a very poor example for lots of other trans people who don't fit that neatly. Right. Yeah. I think that it goes back. It kind of, well, yeah. it, it kind of breaks, it breaks this in half though. And uh, it talks about the difference between gender assignment and gender determination, right? Which is now we're getting into some deeper well, no, but, I mean, university like philosophy. Yeah, I mean, here. my point is if we have a, a child in a school, right, who, who's, who's been a boy or been treated as a boy up until a certain point, And the child says, well, you know, inside I, I feel as though I'm a girl. I want to be treated as a girl. Are we to respect that, or are we to say to that child, boy, girl, it doesn't matter, gender doesn't matter, so no. Well, but you, you put your finger on it. I mean, you can't, I mean, th- this policy basically argues both ways right. at right. the same yeah. time, yeah. right? You know, I mean, it, it, if gender didn't matter, then then people wouldn't feel the need to say, I've been born in the wrong body, right. you know, because we'd all just accept everybody as we are. Yeah. I, I guess the thing that... I think I think the difficult leap is going to be here for people. I think most people of goodwill, whatever their religious background, whatever school system they are affiliated with, have grasped the concept that it is not nice to be mean to children. You know, that if a child is in conflict and in torment and says, you know, I, I feel trapped by the, the gender I was assigned at birth. It does not reflect who I am. I am not comfortable with the gender roles in our culture and, you know, my school experience is miserable and I would be less miserable if people respected, you know, who I feel I am. That doesn't seem to me unreasonable that pretty much anybody, uh, you know, who wasn't a religious zealot could grasp the concept that being mean to children is a bad social policy. (laughs) But but I think the, the leap here is that this policy document, these guidelines go well, well, well beyond saying kids should be able to use the bathroom where they feel the most comfortable. Uh, I mean, these policy guidelines uh, are going to be very disquieting for a lot of people because they say that, you know, even in a school where there are no identified transgender kids, that we should be moving away from putting people into binary uh, Noah's Ark boxes. Right. Now, there's there's a lot to be said for that argument, but... 
I don't know that people are ready to hear it yet. Well, that's true. Paula, we've got to leave it at that. It's a very excellent piece in the Edmonton Journal today, and we thank you for it. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for letting me on. All right, that's Paula Simons, uh, columnist from the Edmonton Journal. Uh, we're very late for a break, but that was a great conversation, so we put the break off a little bit. Rob, we'll take one here. We'll wrap up this hour afterwards. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back. I hope you're clutching your sandwich right now. Ready to have a bite. Got the radio turned up a little bit because we're going to talk about the hottest TV show going right now. This one, Making a Murderer, but a very high-profile uh, murder case out of Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, which is probably uh, probably getting some wicked phone calls at the Tourism Bureau right about now because of this. Well, it's, I saw on Twitter someone posted a joke today about another winning Powerball ticket found uh, the uh, employees of the Sheriff's Office in Manitowoc County, and it was uh, obviously a pen drawn on the lottery <laughs> ticket with the winning numbers, but... You know, that, that's part of why this case is so fascinating. Uh, so here you have Stephen Avery, guy who was accused in 1985 of committing a, a, a brutal rape, gets convicted, 18 years in prison. Certainly comes across uh, that, that right from the get-go, the police singled him out, zeroed in on him, ignored other evidence. Even when he was behind bars, there was evidence coming to light suggesting that there was someone else out there who committed this crime, and the police ignored that. So it just from top to bottom, it just seemed like a, like a disaster and, and that this guy was the victim of the justice system gone mad. So finally, 18 years later, he gets out of jail and all seems right with the world, I guess, finally. Then now, suddenly, two years after that, here he is charged with a murder. And some of those same people responsible for keeping him behind bars are now playing a role in this investigation. Is this guy getting a fair trial? Did he get a fair trial? Was he wrongly convicted a second time? Yeah, you, you got to watch uh, at least an episode or two of Making a Murderer on Netflix if you haven't uh, already. I mean, some of the stuff Rob's talking about, it's one thing if they were procedural errors or anomalies in the investigation and the prosecution. Um, but you're talking about things where, you know, the sheriff drew, hand drew uh, one of those composite images based on the mugshot of the guy that they wanted to put in jail. Like, there's just stuff that you, you'll watch it, and it might anger you, might make you so mad. It is a very compelling film on Netflix, uh, to say the very, very least. And we're very lucky now to be joined by uh, both Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos, and our time is very, very short with them. Yeah, let's get right to it. Speaking with the creators of uh, Making a Murderer on Netflix, which has really become a, a global sensation, to be sure. Um, Moira, let's let's start with you, and, and maybe both of you can speak to this story. But obviously this, this case, this story goes back some 10 years, your own involvement in this story. Uh, let's start there. I mean, the, the story of how you as, as film students packed up and, and went to Wisconsin to follow this intriguing murder trial. Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, we were we were graduate film students at Columbia University in New York when we first read about Stephen Avery, and you know we both had prior careers before going to film school. So we were in our thirties at the time. Laura had been a practicing attorney before film school, and I had worked in film production and later as a documentary editor before school. So you know we had we had a lot of experience at that time. And we read this story that the headline was Freed by DNA, now charged in new crime. And that immediately struck us, at least at that moment, as an unprecedented situation. And what we identified was this incredible and valuable window. You know, by choosing Stephen Avery's story, we had this window into the justice system. We had a man who had been failed by the system in the mid-80s. And after a series of events, here he was thrown back into the system, and it was an opportunity to really check whether whether that system had progressed 
whether we were now going to be in a new and improved system or whether it would have some of the same flaws, you know, that had led to his wrongful conviction in the past. Okay. Judging by that answer, then, it seems to me you might be quite surprised by the success of it. I mean, it's it's a good story and a well-told story, to be sure. Um, but did you anticipate that it would have this kind of following? It, the response to the series is really beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, we'd always hope that we, you know, that the series would, would find its audience and that it would engage viewers. And I think um, it's just... You know, the success of it is really attributable to lots of factors. I mean, I think that right now people are interested in um, long-form storytelling. They they like to feel, you know, um, invested in characters and, and what happens with those characters. And this is a story that follows, for the most part, one man's experiences across the criminal justice system. Um, but it's also, I think, due in part to the platform that we found in partnering with Netflix. The, the fact that, you know, the series was made available all at once and viewers essentially have control over how they consume uh, the series has been wonderful. And then also just the benefit of social media and people um, watching the series, engaging with it, and then participating in a dialogue online has just been wonderful. But it's also the access we have to the story. And there's uh, obviously that entails the access you had to the Avery family and their willingness to, to bring you in and speak to you. There's the fact that you're able to have cameras in the courtroom. There's the fact that you're able to have access to you know, these phone conversations. We've got the video interrogations of Brendan Dassey that are so compelling. So how, how did you manage to pull all of that together? Well, I mean, that's part of why this took 10 years. I mean, it was a lot of work. Um, you know, with our subjects, you know, with all of our subjects, we started by writing letters, introducing ourselves, introducing, you know, the reason we were following the story, which is, you know, what I said earlier, and the role we thought, you know, each of our subjects could play and how valuable they would be. Because, you know, our policy, you know, our driving principle was always to go to the source, to encourage people to, to speak about their firsthand experiences. And through, you know, a whole collage of firsthand experiences, you know, we could come up with a, a picture of what was really going on. Um, and then, you know, we were lucky enough to be following a case in Wisconsin where there are incredibly, you know, generous, open records laws. So you can get access to materials through public records. Um, a lot of these materials were in the case files. So, you know, after production, when we were able to go through case files, we could you know, find interrogation footage or the civil suitcase file, deposition footage. Um, and and then, you know, the fact that cameras were allowed in the courtroom, you know, and that was a collaboration with the local media, which were, you know, very generous and very hospitable to our inclusion in their process. You know, we collaborated with them for, for two years. Um, you know, there'd be a rotating person in, in the courtroom feed, feeding out to a malt box and everybody would plug in. So it was you know, the whole experience was really a great one. Is there a concern at all that, that there might be some uh, pitfalls or perils opening up to us uh, by virtue of the fact that this is becoming such entertaining content? Um, I guess the, to ask the question more directly, um, if people can be successful telling stories about prisoners who uh, may have been wrongfully convicted, then is there a danger that there will be people who rush for fame by just 
framing, uh, positioning a prisoner as wrongfully convicted, whether he is or not? Um, I mean, I guess there's no way of knowing what, you know, others may choose to do. I mean, I hope whatever people do, you know, they they do so ethically. I mean, you know, our our subject was really the justice system. That's that's what we were pointing our cameras at and, and trying to explore. So, um, you know, and from what I read of, of people's responses, whether they be people reaching out to me or, or what I see on, you know, Twitter or Facebook or other social media is... I would not necessarily say what they are reporting is that they were entertained. I, I think, you know, they were moved and, and they were troubled and they're trying to grapple with, with what they have seen. And, you know, that's where the dialogue is starting, trying to understand, you know, what it is that's going on in our court system. You know, as someone who's watched it and you come away from it with some level of sympathy for, for these two and the fact that they're still sitting behind bars, uh, and, and so people do perceive it then as that this is advocacy for Stephen Avery, advocacy for Brendan Dassey. But but as you say, it's it, that wasn't necessarily in the intent? That's right. This was not advocacy. I mean, we were not part of the process. Um, we were not trying to have an impact on the process. We were documenting the process. And, you know, we showed people, um, you know, these were the actions people took. These were the things people said. And we, you know, presented this story as thoroughly and accurately and fairly as we could. Yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, the reason we chose Stephen's story. You know, we didn't choose Stephen, you know, to prove Stephen innocent or anything like that. We chose Stephen because of, you know... The window that he could offer his unique status as a DNA exoneree accused of a crime and the, the journey that we and thus our viewers would be able to take through the justice system and, and what we could learn from taking that journey. Well, it's a fascinating story, and uh, certainly everyone's talking about it. Making a Murderer, it's uh, available on Netflix. Uh, Moira and Laura, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our pleasure. Bye. i got to uh, now go back and, and rewatch the series, Rob, uh, because I thought it was about Stephen Avery, but it's about the justice system. Well, the, <laughs> I mean, the name, uh, you know, the, the title is is Making a Murderer. And it, I mean, it speaks to, to the way Stephen Avery was portrayed by the justice system did did what happened to him turn him into a murderer uh was the justice system able to create the perception that he was a murderer i think in a lot of ways it is about the justice system and whether this guy got a fair trial here he was suing manitowoc county for 36 million dollars the county and the sheriff's department would have been on the hook for those damages and yet some of the people who were deposed in that very lawsuit are not only investigating Stephen Avery, but finding key pieces of evidence against him. Right. But How can you possibly get a fair trial in that sense? It's not a question of, well, ha-ha, proves him innocent, or, you know, he's... It's, 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 it's that in keeping with the principles of, of justice and somebody being presumed innocent and getting a fair trial. The, um, I mean, it's almost impossible at that point for the county to get the guy a fair trial, which which is a preposterous... Guarantee. Well, I, well, in the American I, don't, I think in any system. case like that, where there's a clear conflict of interest, it's like we're handing this off. We're not going to touch this investigation, just in the interest of not tainting this, even in their own selfish interest of not giving this guy an, an excuse or some argument he can use in court. We're, we're just not going to touch this, and we're going to hand this off 
And so then you get all the weird stuff. I mean, who's the guy who finds the key, right? The key of the, the murder victim's vehicle after seven searches of the same room. This one cop finds it lying on the floor, the same cop who was deposed in the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, there's Stephen Avery's DNA on the key. The victim's DNA is not on the key. His fingerprints aren't on the key. Nobody else's DNA is on the key, only his. And wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and they get the vial of blood with the puncture in the top of it. The evidence has clearly been tampered with. But but here's here's a question to ponder as we go into a break here. And we're, we're not going to have enough time to do this today, so we'll probably include this on our podcast, which we're going to tape after uh, after today's broadcast. Um, but it's, it's, it's a story that's being told by the guests that we just had on, Laura and Moira. And are they telling us everything? Because would, is, does Netflix put this on their service uh, because they're social justice crusaders? Or do they put it on because they say, yeah, that's good content. People are going to want to watch that. And that's the problem that I have with this stuff is that I'm getting the interpretation of this entire case through one particular lens, and it's not designed to exonerate Stephen Avery. It's designed to get eyeballs. Well, how's that different from you know with the Fifth Estate? The Fifth Estate just did a big piece on, on Neil Bantelman last week. Because no one watches that. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, so, yeah, okay. I mean, Netflix is, is in business to make money, and they want people to watch their shows. So, yeah, and, and a lot of people have watched this show. Right, but if the recipe is... Go find a case and make everybody sympathetic with Adnan, like they did with uh, uh, Serial, that podcast, right? And it's like, oh, you guys, you, you won't believe that they got this guy in jail. It sounds like he didn't do it. And that's how you approach it? Then I think that there's a there's a whole lot of money to be made by finding cases where, hey, you know what? We can we can tell this story in such a way that you'll think the guy didn't even do it. And then you can go okay, ahead. But and- we got this show and that podcast yeah. that was on a public broadcaster. But then you've also got, that's true, it was on NPR, but then you've also got this change.org petition of like millions of Americans or whatever it is calling on the state to uh, release this guy. Let's give him an appeal and, and whatnot. Yeah, but I can't think of a lot of other examples. Yet. I think we're just going down this path. That's my point. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll, we'll, we've got to get one in here. We'll, we'll continue the discussion afterwards. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.